It was a beautiful fall day in 1894. The Manti Temple looked glorious as the morning light almost gave it a heavenly glow. My handsome, six-foot-four-inch, 25-year-old grandfather, Peter Daniel Jensen, was there to meet and marry his beautiful 20-year-old bride, Sarah Jane Reese. Family was gathered, and it was indeed a day of joy and happiness. Grandpa was known to be a consistent journal keeper. How would he describe this glorious day in his sacred journal? I have seen what he wrote for Wednesday, September 26, 1894. It simply read, Today I married Sarah Jane Reese. Adam and Eve also kept a book of remembrance, and fortunately, they recorded so much more. Let's talk about that today. Welcome to Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. We are Scott and Maureen Proctor, and we are delighted to be with you again this week as we study Genesis chapter 5 and Moses chapter 6 together. When you read the Genesis account, you might think this is just a boring genealogy with not much more information than Peter Daniel Jensen's journal entry. If you were to think that, you would be wrong. Let's do some exploring together as we look at our brave and majestic first parents, Adam and Eve, and their family, the first family of sons and daughters of God on earth. I believe if we were given the chance to see our parents, Adam and Eve, again, we would be overwhelmed with our connection to them, the love that we would feel from them, their personal knowledge of us, and their majesty and glory. Now, if you just lay out all the birth and death dates on a simple chart, you see that by the time Adam comes to Adam on Diamond for the Great Gathering, it is three years before his death, and according to the notes Joseph Smith took during the translation of the Bible, Adam would live to be a thousand years old, so he was 997 years old, and nine generations of these venerable patriarchs and likely their wives were alive at this time. That is pretty exciting. I wish we could have been there at that unprecedented gathering at Adam on Diamond, just so we could do a little family history work. Wouldn't that have been top-notch? So, what are some things we know about Eve, our first mother? I have to interject here that I recently asked Vivian Adams, who is Bruce R. McConkie's daughter, to write a piece for Meridian on Eve. She accepted the assignment, and the article is not to be missed. We quote from Vivian here. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve's name was not only personal, but a title and pronouncement of an overarching, all-embracing, wondrous doctrine, that of the initiation of life, worlds without number. The name we learn from the Hebrew, Hava, means life or life-giver. While this designation points toward the initiation of life on earth, it is meant in the most holy sense to point to that ongoing system which will eventuate in the creation of life and generation throughout the universe and beyond. Eve is the personification of the entirety of life's purpose and the fact that life stems from only such a covenant mother. The name title is sacred, as is the word mother, which in the Hebrew means bond of the family and adds to our understanding of the eternal plan as it centers in women. Nothing comes into existence temporally or eternally until the appointed woman, 
wife, and mother begins the process. Even animal life and plant life do not come into Earth's sentient sphere until Eve evokes it in the joyful fall over which angels rejoiced and which opened the world. It is for this reason that the prophet Joseph Smith explained that when the Genesis term ruach, or the breath of life, applies to Eve, it should be translated lives, like breath of lives. Eve achieved premortal preeminence specifically because she had so conformed to the character, attributes, and principles surrounding eternal motherhood. On any given Sabbath, we are wont to sing Eliza R. Snow's immortal words, In the heavens are parents single? No, the thought makes reason stare. Truth is reason, truth eternal, tells me I've a mother there. We exult in that mother, knowing that she presides in holiness and truth as the consort of the Eternal Father. That full measure of creation indelibly marked Eve's soul. That is beautiful. And I do love the fact that when Joseph F. Smith, Vivian's great-grandfather, saw the great vision of the redemption of the dead, he saw Eve and he referred to her as our glorious Mother Eve. There doesn't seem to be a better description of her, and I'm sure when we see her again someday, as we have mentioned, we will be overwhelmed and humbled by her majesty, her glory, and her love for us. And this is just our earthly Mother Eve. Vivian also wrote this, Our glorious Mother Eve, beginning woman, wife and mother, the last created being to enter Eden's paradisiacal temple, the Hebrew Gan, Eden, the Garden of Delight, and the first to willingly leave it. Now, we find out as we are leading church history tours that most people are confused in their mind about where the Garden of Eden was located. Most think it was at Adam on Diamond, but this is not correct. Exactly. We hear this all the time. Professor Bruce Van Orden wrote, We must remember that the whole earth was paradisiacal before the fall. The Garden of Eden was a center place. After the fall, there was no Garden of Eden or paradisiacal status on earth. Yet relative to the locale of the site of the Garden of Eden, the prophet Joseph Smith learned through Revelation that Jackson County was the location of a Zion-to-be and the New Jerusalem to come. The prophet first visited Jackson County, Missouri in the summer of 1831. The prophet visited Jackson County again in April and May 1832. On one of the occasions, or perhaps both, the prophet Joseph apparently instructed his close associates, and perhaps even a general church gathering, that the ancient Garden of Eden was also located in Jackson County. Brigham Young stated, Joseph the prophet told me that the Garden of Eden was in Jackson County, Missouri. Heber C. Kimball said, From the Lord, Joseph learned that Adam had dwelt on the land of America and that the Garden of Eden was located where Jackson County now is. Other early leaders have given the same information. President Joseph Fielding Smith said, In accord with the revelations given to the prophet Joseph Smith, we teach that the Garden of Eden was on the American continent located where the city of Zion or the New Jerusalem, will be built. When Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, they eventually dwelt at a place called Adam on Diamond, 
situated in what is now Davies County, Missouri. We are committed to the fact that Adam dwelt on the American continent. So, what are some basic things that we know about Adam? His name is mentioned 56 times in the scriptures. He plays a role unlike any other man who ever came to earth. Brother Robert Millet writes, Few persons in all eternity have been more directly involved in the plan of salvation, the creation, the fall, and the ultimate redemption of the children of God than the man Adam. His ministry among the sons and daughters of earth stretches from the distant past of premortality to the distant future of resurrection, judgment, and beyond. As Michael, the archangel, Adam led the forces of God against the armies of Lucifer in the war in heaven. Under the direction of Elohim and Jehovah, he assisted in the creation of the earth. After taking physical bodies, Adam and Eve brought mortality into being through partaking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. With the fall of our first parents came blood and posterity and probation and death, as well as the need for redemption through a Savior, a last Adam. To Adam the gospel was first preached, and upon him the priesthood was first bestowed. From Adam and Eve the message of the gospel of salvation went forth to all the world. Following his death, which occurred almost a millennium after he entered mortality, Adam's watch care over his posterity continued. Revelations have come and angels have ministered under his direction. Priesthood has been conferred and keys delivered at his behest. We believe that it was mighty Michael, or Adam, who came to the Garden of Gethsemane to comfort the Lord Jesus Christ in his divine agony there. Adam is the first post-mortal being mentioned by name in the great vision of the redemption of the dead. Here, he is called Father Adam, the Ancient of Days and Father of All. This same Michael, or Adam, came to protect the prophet Joseph and Oliver Cowdery from being deceived by Lucifer on the banks of the Susquehanna River and certainly cast him out. Michael, or Adam, the earthly father of us all, will someday appear at Adam on Diamond and there preside briefly over the greatest gathering in the history of the world. He will gather his righteous posterity from all generations of time and there receive all the keys and stewardships back from them and then, in a manner unseen in the history of the earth, present them to the one who will appear and who does preside, the Savior of the world, even Jesus Christ, the great Jehovah. Now, briefly back to the location of the Garden of Eden and how people are often confused. After the fall of the earth, which had itself been in that paradisical state, if even the remnant or vestige of the Garden of Eden perhaps the tree of life with cherubim and the flaming sword was located in Jackson County, our first parents left that area and ended up, as President Joseph Fielding Smith taught, about 70 miles north, northeast from there, near present-day Gallatin, Missouri, in the place we call Adam on Diamond. And this is where Adam and Eve dwelt. This is where they had an altar and offered sacrifices unto the Lord. This is sacred and holy ground. And what was that tree of life? What kind of tree? We really don't know, but in the Middle Eastern Hebrew traditions, it is almost always an olive tree. 
a tree that gives life and light and food and strength to the people, a tree that can weather all storms, that grows and grows, and even if it appears to die, it just will not die. I remember when they brought a 600-year-old, perhaps even a thousand-year-old, olive tree with a long line off a helicopter to the BYU-Jerusalem Center from the Galilee. As they carefully plopped it into the ground with its entire root system, it wasn't long before every leaf went dry and the tree just flat out died. At least everyone thought it was dead. Truman Matson told us he was just heartsick as he watched this venerable tree not respond to all their efforts to revive it. But, within a period of time, a little shoot started out from the main trunk, and then another, and then another. Before long, the tree was alive again, and it is a glorious, beautiful tree today. That's the kind of tree that certainly well represents the symbology of the tree of life. So, in these early days of starting the family of man, we have two witnesses of the reality and existence of God, the Eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, Adam and Eve. They had walked and talked with Elohim and Jehovah for we don't know how long, and they knew them extremely well and had been carefully taught by them. Can you imagine if the main teacher for your life was God himself and Jesus Christ? Perhaps that's the pattern that should be in all of our lives. Adam stood as the priesthood head of the first dispensation of the earth, and Eve was there as a second witness by his side. In every dispensation, there is a witness called, and in this case too, and that witness has seen God face to face and has been instructed by him. And that person then bears his witness of God to others who, in most cases, have to exercise their faith in that prophet's witness. But this generation shall have my word through you, the Lord told the prophet Joseph in March of 1829. It's the same pattern. We'll talk about other heads of dispensations throughout the year. And those of us who are parents are, in like manner, to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places to our children and our posterity. Think of what it would be like if all of us would actually do that, to be witnesses of God the Father and Christ to our posterity all the time. It was through Adam and Eve that their children obtained witnesses of the Father and the Son. And in Adam's day, God also revealed himself unto Seth, and he rebelled not, like unto his brother Cain, but offered an acceptable sacrifice, like unto his brother Abel. And then began these men to call upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord blessed them. Now listen carefully to this. And a book of remembrance was kept, in the which was recorded in the language of Adam, for it was given unto as many as called upon God to write by the spirit of inspiration, and by them their children were taught to read and write, having a language which was pure and undefiled. I like so much this whole idea of keeping a book of remembrance where the testimonies and witnesses of the parents are kept to build faith and, in this case, where the children of Adam and Eve were first taught to read and to write. Imagine this pure and undefiled language, sometimes referred to as the Adamic language or the Adamic tongue. 
The scriptures state that this language, written and spoken by Adam and his children, was pure and undefiled. Brigham Young taught that it continued from Adam to Babel, at which time the Lord caused the people to forget their own mother tongue, scattering them abroad upon the face of the whole earth, except possibly for Jared and his family in the Book of Mormon. This statement reflects the widely held Latter-day Saint belief that the founding members of the Jaredite civilization preserved the Adamic language at their immigration to the New World. Thus, the description by the brother of Jared of his apocalyptic vision was rendered linguistically inaccessible without divine interpretive help, since the language which he shall write, I, God, have confounded. Remember when the brother of Jared went to the mount with sixteen stones to have them touched by the finger of the Lord? He came down from the mountain with eighteen stones, two of which were designated by the voice of the Lord to be hidden up with the sacred record of Mahanrai Moriankamer so that the written account of his vision could be translated from this original powerful language. These latter two stones would be the same Urim and Thummim that Joseph Smith used to translate the gold plates by the gift and power of God to bring forth the Book of Mormon. This is all very exciting indeed, isn't it? And Maureen, as I've been studying for this week's podcast and also studying the words of our living prophets today, they are coming from the very same source. Listen to this from the Book of Moses. This is in verse 51 of chapter 6 of Moses. And he called upon our father Adam by his own voice, saying, I am God. I made the world and men before they were in the flesh. And he also said unto him, If thou wilt turn unto me, and hearken unto my voice, and believe, and repent of all thy transgressions, and be baptized even in water, in the name of mine only begotten Son, who is full of grace and truth, which is Jesus Christ, the only name which shall be given under heaven, whereby salvation shall come unto the children of men. Ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, asking all things in his name, and whatsoever ye shall ask, it shall be given you. This sounds like it's coming right out of the modern-day missionary discussions. In our day, we say, we believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of Christ, the first principles and ordinances of the gospel have been taught from the beginning of time. In fact, Adam and Eve were given the commandment to teach these things freely unto their children. That's right. For the Christian world to think that Jesus came to the earth and set up his gospel for the very first time, well, they just have not seen the fullness of the records, and they just don't know that this gospel was preached from the very beginning to Adam and Eve. Verse 57, Wherefore, teach it unto your children, the Lord continues, that all men everywhere must repent, 
or they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God, for no unclean thing can dwell there or dwell in his presence, for in the language of Adam, man of holiness is his name, and the name of his only begotten is the Son of Man, even Jesus Christ, a righteous judge who shall come in the meridian of time. There we get some insight into the language of Adam. Elohim, the eternal father of us all, in the language of Adam, is called man of holiness. In that same language, Jesus Christ is called the Son of Man, which is short for the Son of Man of holiness. And we shall see that the great city that Enoch, the fourth great-grandson of Adam, built is called City of Holiness. Can you see why it is so significant that on every temple is inscribed the words holiness to the Lord, the house of the Lord? In our world of almost complete unholiness, it's good to know that there indeed are holy things and we can be a part of them. I have to interject here, Maureen, and tell our listeners about that experience we had at the city of David and at the Temple Mount Dig in Jerusalem. First of all, We take our tours every year to the Temple Mount Dig, a place where they let students, classes, families, and tour groups come in, and in a little less than an hour, you are trained how to be an archaeologist, and you then actually go through Temple Mount materials, buckets filled with dirt, rocks, and other amazing things. You dump each bucket out onto a screen, and then you carefully spray everything with water, and then you go through each remaining item. Our tour participants have found tiles from the first temple period at the time of Nephi, coins from the time of Christ, a crucifixion nail one year, and lots of pottery shards and interesting things. One day we were there and asked one of the archaeologists this question, what is the coolest thing you've ever found personally here in this dig? He seemed to not want to answer. He just went on and helped someone else. He came over when we had our next bucket of material to be inspected. I asked him again, really, I would like to know what's the coolest thing that you have personally found here. He still didn't answer. On the third attempt, he reluctantly and humbly motioned for Maureen and me to follow him. We walked the length of the sorting area and headed to the office. He really didn't say much. He just pointed to a newspaper article that was taped up on the wall. It showed a picture of a small bula, an ancient clay seal, and a picture of him as the one credited for finding it. We were so excited, that seal said on it in the Aramaic, Dekaleia, meaning pure for God. Apparently this stamp or seal was used to mark vessels that were ready to enter the holy temple in Jerusalem and no vessel of oil or object could enter the temple unless it was marked with this seal, which was put into hot wax, pure for God. We were thrilled. But that's not the end of the story. On another trip to Israel, we were with Dr. D. Kelly Ogden, and he looked at that same Aramaic seal and said out loud, Dekalea. That can also be translated as holiness to the Lord. That got us very excited. The Jews at the City of David archaeological site have a gift store with these pure-for-God necklaces. They are beautiful, and we thought they would be wonderful to find a way to sell them on Meridian. 
We were talking to Matanya, the manager there one day, and telling him about our interest in this necklace. He knew that we were Latter-day Saints, but he didn't know a lot about our beliefs and practices or even our temples. We told him we knew our people would love these necklaces. Why, he asked. Because the temple means everything to us, and it takes a lot to get into our temples as members of the church. We have to be worthy to enter in. We have to be Dekalea, pure for God. To drive this home for him, I pulled out my temple recommend and showed him and said, We can only obtain one of these if we can live our lives a certain way. We have to keep the commandments. We have to be morally clean. We have to believe with all our hearts in God. We have to live our health code and pay a full tithing. Through all of this, we might say, we are recommended to God, or better yet, pure for God. All of a sudden, everything came clear to Matanya. His eyes grew wide and bright, and he said, Ah, I see. I understand. And I think the reason I love that story is not only because of the intercultural, interreligious understanding that we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ had with this wonderful Jewish man whom we love, but because there are holy things in the world. There really are. God is holy. Man of holiness is his name. Son of man is holy, even Jesus Christ, who is the son of man of holiness. Our homes, like unto the city of holiness, can become holy and have the Spirit of the Lord dwell therein at all times. This is our greatest desire for our home, and we know it is for yours. There's so much more to say about Adam and Eve, but we have to talk about Enoch. His story is remarkable and little known or unknown altogether in the Christian world. Please come to Meridian and read the various articles we have up right now by Vivian McConkie Adams on Eve and also on The Fall, and Jeffrey Bradshaw on The Rediscovery of Enoch, Carrie Mulestein on the faulty assumptions about the book of Abraham, and Stephen Harper about the creation. We are loaded. It's just so rich. Well, I also think it's worth searching for an article you did, Maureen, about two years ago called What I Want My Daughters to Understand About Eve. We used a portion of that for the podcast last week, but there is much more in that article, and I loved it. It's worth sharing. Meridian Magazine is a rich ground to harvest some amazing articles and inspiration, and you know, it's just at latterdaysaintmag.com. Now, Enoch is, as we have said, the fourth great-grandson of Adam. He is referred to often in the apocryphal works as the teacher of righteousness. He had an insatiable desire to learn and to record everything. He was such a stargazer, he is thought of in ancient texts as the one who named all the constellations and learned the most about the heavens. He sought to make binding covenants with God, and he was also known as the weeping angel because he felt so much compassion for the children of men and for the God who created them. Enoch was ordained a high priest at the age of 25, a young age even in our time, but especially in an age when people were living to be nearly a thousand years old. When Enoch was 65 years old, what we might call retirement age in our day, he was given his special calling. And listen to this. The Spirit of God descended out of heaven and abode upon him. 
And he heard a voice from heaven, saying, Enoch, my son, prophesy unto this people, and say unto them, Repent, for thus saith the Lord, I am angry with this people, and my fierce anger is kindled against them. For their hearts have waxed hard, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes cannot see afar off. That's such a curious description of the people. Enoch became known as the seer, and he was specifically called to cry repentance to a people who could not see afar off, which is exactly the opposite of a seer. Do we see that among the people in our day, in our world? Do we live in a time when people cannot see afar off? In other words, have people lost their vision? Have they forgotten what is holy? Have they forgotten the past? And are they so concerned about the present they cannot even bear to look upon the future? In Proverbs we learn, where there is no vision, the people perish. And I relate so well to Enoch's response to his mission call from the Lord. And when Enoch had heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord and spake before the Lord, saying, Why is it that I have found favor in thy sight, and am but a lad, and all the people hate me? For I am slow of speech, wherefore am I thy servant? It's fascinating that at age 65, Enoch would refer to himself as but a lad. However, his venerable four greats-grandfather Adam, at Enoch's birth, was indeed 622 years old. Seth was 492 Enos was 387, Canaan was 297, his own grandfather, Mahalalil, was 227, and his father, Jared, was 162. Maybe that's why he felt like a lad. But the Lord encouraged him, and the Lord said unto Enoch, Go forth, and do as I have commanded thee, and no man shall pierce thee. Open thy mouth, and it shall be filled, and I will give thee utterance, for all flesh is in my hands, and I will do as seemeth me good. Say unto this people, Choose ye this day to serve the Lord God who made you. Behold, my spirit is upon you, wherefore all thy words will I justify, and the mountains shall flee before you, and the rivers shall turn from their course, and thou shalt abide in me, and I in you. Therefore, walk with me. Maureen, that's always been one of my favorite commandments in Scripture. And thou shalt abide in me, and I in you. Therefore, walk with me. And it reminds me of the Lord's words in John chapter 15, verse 5, one of our memorized scriptures. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. And Enoch indeed kept that commandment, and he did walk with Jesus Christ. We learn in section 107 of the Doctrine and Covenants, And he walked with him, and was before his face continually, and he walked with God 365 years. Now, what kind of immense privilege is that? It appears from all the literature and words spoken about this verse that this was literal, that Jesus Christ himself was walking with them for all that time. We don't know how many others were walking with him, and we don't know what the population of Enoch's people were. But beginning at Enoch's age of 65, 
he walked with God. And something happened during that time, those 365 years, because Enoch became so righteous, and so did his people in the city of holiness, or Zion, that they were taken up from the earth. And this translation of the city of holiness, or as we more commonly call it, the city of Enoch, took place 55 years after the great gathering at Adam on Diamond. That would be about equivalent in our day, just since the General Conference in 1967, three years prior to the passing of the prophet David O. McKay. That puts it in perspective, it? really it? does. And the Lord spake unto Enoch, and said unto him, Anoint thine eyes with clay, and wash them, and thou shalt see. And he did so. And he beheld the spirits that God had created, and he beheld also things which were not visible to the natural eye, and from thenceforth came the saying abroad in the land, A seer hath the Lord raised up unto his people. That's also a fascinating line that Enoch was able to see things which were not visible to the natural eye. How much of our existence on this planet falls into that category? We cannot see afar off. We cannot see most of what really is. We see through a glass darkly. And any one of our own experiences, even through a whole lifetime, are so limited compared to what is. Listen to a brief description of Enoch's first mission. And it came to pass that Enoch went forth in the land among the people, standing upon the hills and the high places, and cried with a loud voice, testifying against their works, and all men were offended because of him. Doesn't that have the possibility of being so discouraging if all men were offended because of what he was saying? But he was able to be strong and stay with that message that he had for them because he knew God. And God was with him. And they came forth to hear him upon the high places, saying unto the tent keepers, Tarry ye here, and keep the tents, while we go yonder to behold the seer. For he prophesieth, and there is a strange thing in the land. A wild man hath come among us. And it came to pass, when they heard him, no man laid hands on him, for fear came on all them that heard him, for he walked with God. And there came a man unto him, whose name was Mahijah, or Mahiah, and said unto him, Tell us plainly who thou art, and from whence thou comest. Now, we stop here because we have another significant article right now on Meridian by our dear friend Jeffrey Bradshaw, all about this man, Mahijah, called Mahijah, the unlikely co-star of the Enoch story, and it's fascinating. We're going to talk a lot more about Enoch next time. But one more thing we have to say this week is from verses 46 and 47 of Moses chapter 6. This is one of the missionary tools he is using on his mission. For a book of remembrance we have written among us, according to the pattern given by the finger of God, and it is given in our own language. And as Enoch spake forth the words of God, the people trembled and could not stand in his presence. This whole idea of the language and the words of God that he gave to Enoch is a principle with great power. 
We'll explore that next week. That's all for today. We love studying together with you, our dear listeners. Next week, we'll be just studying Moses chapter 7. We are grateful to Paul Cardall for the music that accompanies this podcast and to our producer, Michaela Proctor-Hutchins. Blessings to you and see you next time.